Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 1, Kryptonian Remnant. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll tackle the criticisms of an ambitious and polarizing film to gain insight into the future of this shared universe. On today's episode, we're going to cover the remnants of Kryptonian technology, what's still left on Earth after Man of Steel, and how it could impact the future films, or Superman's characterization. If you're like me, you really enjoyed The Man of Steel, but you knew it would be polarizing. Even a year later, people are still discussing it, still debating it, passionately and with a lot of enthusiasm. Batman v Superman is just two years off, and we've got a DC Cinematic Universe slated to run till 2020. That excitement and passion is only going to grow. So this is a podcast for fans who want to dive deep into The Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. The show isn't meant to convert anybody, reasonable minds are going to differ after all, but it's for fans who love to chew their food. So this is a pilot episode, and I'm still working out the kinks on the format, but as a general approach, we're going to start with diegetic analysis. That means within the logic or the world of the story, not because those are necessarily the main criticisms or controversies that surround this film, but because they tend to be more objective, fact-based questions which we can address more decisively. After we develop a factual basis for what happened in the films, then we can begin to subjectively analyze the creative decisions made outside the film. I think that's a logical approach, and it also gives me time to polish the format before getting into the really big controversies, like the tornado scene or the ending. We definitely want to give those topics their due from a multifaceted approach. In the meantime, we're going to do overview episodes like this one. So let's just get right into it. I'm going to list off all the technologies first, and then we'll go back and discuss them one by one. Number one, we've got Lois's escape pod. And number two, we've got the Kryptonian signals or code transmitted by Zaz Ultimatum. Number three, we've got the environmental impact or the terraformed Earth from the Black Zero and the World Engine working in tandem for the period of time that they were operational. Number four, we've got Zod's body. Number five, we've got the scout ship. And number six, we've got the Arctic shuttle. If you're scratching your head on eight, either of those two, we'll come back and discuss them and explain why. And then number seven, we've got Zod's armor. So let's start with Lois's escape pod. You might remember that she was ejected out of the Black Zero, and her pod was damaged when it was fired upon by Carvex. Carvex is the name of the Kryptonian that she was wrestling with. I think it's in the um, credits, and it's also in the novelization. It wasn't mentioned in the film, so if you didn't know that name, don't worry about it. It is just an escape pod, but at the same time, you'd be surprised how much scientists could glean from even a wrecked, exploded smoldering escape pod. You'd be able to glean from it materials, sort of the organic nature of Kryptonian technology, just the uh, 
the small size of it compared to a human space pod or escape pod. So the heat shielding, all these kind of technologies could all just come from that one little escape pod. All right, so the next thing that we've got, number two on the list, are the Kryptonian signals or code. And the thing about that is that we we kind of get the impression that the Black Zero was scanning the Earth for some period of time before they made their sort of grand entrance. We know that they have some rudimentary understanding of human society, technology, language, all those things. They knew to single out, for example, Lois Lane. They knew how to make the ultimatum effective. And they did it in, they did it in a way that they were able to take over everything with a screen on Earth. So that's, that's pretty impressive. I don't know if that was done via some sort of master broadcast signal that was just so amazing that's able to overtake all those different disparate technologies, or if it's some uber hack that Kryptonian code is able to crack all those different things. But either way, it's impressive. And either way, there may be some sort of remnant there for humans to study or to uh, use or manipulate. So either there's this master override broadcast signal that humans can study and say, you know, this might be a nice way to overtake other technologies or invade other technologies, or there may be some sort of code left over, uh, a code that's able to uber hack everything with a screen on Earth. And the thing about that, you might think I'm getting overly excited about this, but that sort of overarching universal hacking technology is such a useful lubricant for making superhero tropes work. That's why you have so many Oracle or Watchtower or hacker type characters who are support staff for superheroes, because you need that kind of almost hacker magic to make things work. And here, in a brief little segment of the film, we get a hint of something that might be used that way. So that's kind of interesting. All right, next we've got the environmental impact slash terraformed Earth that came out of the um, the World Engine and the Black Zero working in tandem for the period that they were working. So it wasn't like they just turned on and were instantly stopped, or it wasn't like that they were ticking down to being turned on. No, they were running for a good amount of time, maybe to the grievance of a lot of viewers who uh, were upset by how much damage they did. But the fact is, they they may you know their purpose in the film was to terraform Earth. They were running for a period of time with that effect, so presumably they actually terraformed the Earth some. Now, granted, that may be an assumption. If you look at the outposts, the Kryptonian outposts, none of them were that that we saw. To be to be fair, we only saw one. That one outpost that we saw did not have a habitable. Kryptonian environment. They were on it in spacesuits, right? They had their um, their big glass dome astronaut helmets on. So it's arguable that the effects are reversible, or maybe that environment wasn't eligible for terraforming in the first place. So maybe uh, Earth experienced the effects temporarily, and then it reversed. Who knows? But I think more intuitively, we tend to believe that whatever 
impact there was was um, was actually impacted. Uh, the other thing is the Earth is a massive, massive, massive thing. So you could even effectively terraform it, but terraform it so little as to make no meaningful difference. So that might be the other possibility has been terraformed, but nothing happened. But hey, none of that is exciting. Let's talk about the things that are possibly exciting, right? The things that may lead into future films or affect other characters. Well, the first one we've got, and the one that a lot of people have clung to because they 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 want to uh, they want to see Aquaman be pissed off at Superman. I think that's the bottom line. The Indian Ocean impact, right? You have this giant device essentially doing at least what one study or report claimed is the equivalent of a repeating nuclear physical strike without the radiation against the Indian Ocean, parting the seas and doing God knows what to the environment, the impact alone could devastate environments, ecological environments particularly. I mean, we we certainly saw what it did to an urban environment, but, you know, the ocean is a delicate ecosystem and pounding it with nukes repeatedly (laughs) probably isn't so good for it. Uh, And who knows what kind of energies or materials or toxins were produced in the process, right? So one of the things that people have speculated, of course, is that Aquaman is not at all happy with this. Now, I have some issues with him bringing a grievance to Superman two years later after the event. We don't know that Batman v Superman or Justice League is two years later. That comes from a rumor dealing with the statue scene. Sorry, no spoiler alert on that. It is really just speculation at this point. But it is a little bit odd to be really, really mad at Superman and then sit on it for uh 720 days before you act. So, but we can talk about rumor roundup will be a future episode, I promise. The other thing that's pretty obvious is that Kryptonian atmosphere, the Kryptonian environment is a is a weakening factor for for Superman in Man of Steel. It was a stand-in for Kryptonite, and so what is an obvious product or byproduct of terraforming, but potentially some form of kryptonite or at least some mineral or process that could be refined into kryptonite. Presumably terraforming the planet into krypton would not in and of self generate kryptonite, right? The planet wasn't a giant radioactive green rock, but perhaps because the process was interrupted or because, uh, you know, it's introducing these new and interesting elements, some enterprising billionaire chooses to refine or research it, this could be an easy starting point for kryptonite. Now, obviously, as fans, we have a mixed emotions about kryptonite. It is certainly a part of the mythos, but it's so interesting to have freedom from it for the first time in a film adaptation of Superman for an extended period. It seems, it's something I think... I would like them to keep exploring for now. If they don't have to pull that that kryptonite ripcord just yet, maybe we can we can have some more original and really interesting and challenging stories uh, without having to rely on that kryptonite trope. Okay, so number four, we've got Zod's body. Okay, that's something that maybe your mind didn't jump to immediately as say technology, right? It's a little morbid. It's somebody's, it's somebody's body, 
right? But assuming that somebody claims that body and that person isn't Superman, that is incredible wealth of information and potential technology. Zod is the product of eugenics. He experienced at least some somatic reconditioning as a part of his uh, prison sentence. And for all we know, either soldiers or in the womb, they undergo somatic reconditioning. So his mind would be the product of some sort of process like that. You would have tissue samples, you'd have their genes, their DNA, you'd be able to divine weaknesses from this. And of course, you'd be able to have all the fun biological freaks and clones and misfits coming from these alien genetic samples. So you've got your Bizarro, you've got your Doomsday, you potentially have Parasite and every other Superman villain coming out of uh, organically based Superman villain coming out of Zod's body. And I have mixed feelings about that as well. I don't necessarily feel that everything needs to be Kryptonian magic, but at the same time, there's a, there's a certain elegance to it. And I can understand why a lot of maybe rumor mongers or fan site people have gravitated to theories like that. Okay. So number five is the scout ship. And you might be protesting and saying, hang on a second, the scout ship was destroyed. It, it, it got crashed and it went into that singularity with the Black Zero. Well, no, no, it didn't. When you see Zod for the first time after the singularity, the scout ship is clearly, at least a large portion of it, clearly visible behind him. And that's very logical for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, Zod wasn't sucked into the singularity. The singularity disappeared and Zod is, is, is still out there. He's still by himself. So why wouldn't the ship that he went down with be also outside of the reach of that singularity? There's also, and this is sort of a side theory, but we can talk about it later, the scout ship traveled to Earth by normal means. It didn't have a phantom drive. So it never spent any time in the phantom zone. It was never bathed in phantom zone energies, like the things struck by the gravity beam, like the debris struck by the gravity beam, or like the Kryptonians who spent some time in the uh, phantom zone, both as prisoners and in using the phantom drive, or Superman's ship, or Superman himself. So all of those things that were sucked into the singularity, they were things that were exposed previously to phantom zone energies. And that explains why Lois can fall freely away from the singularity, whereas things around them were being pulled up and Superman had to himself resist the pull of that singularity. So there you just got a freebie answer that doesn't really have to deal with this episode. But yeah, the scout ship was largely intact. Okay, we did see Kal-El or Superman use his heat vision and, and damage the, uh, the controls. We did see the Genesis chamber crack and flood. But at the end of the day, that's a giant piece of tech, no matter how much of it is operational, sitting in the middle of Metropolis. And think of how much an archaeological, engineering, scientific team could learn from that. So inside... Whether working or not, you've got the Genesis Chamber and everything that it could teach you about Kryptonian eugenics, biology, fertilization, the uh, robotics, the little droids that maintain and manage the Genesis Chamber, the one that we saw back on Krypton. 
you figure similar robots have to be in that ship. We also know that it's got the hovering security droids. It's got AI. I know that you're saying, hang on a second, Jor-El was erased. Yeah, but you have to remember that there was the AI that responded to Zod in order to delete Jor-El and also was the same AI that did uh, the targeting. Well, we don't know how advanced that AI is. The other possibilities, for all we know, Jor-El is actually still in there. He's Krypton's foremost scientist. He's computer operated and enhanced. So maybe he can out-hack a security program that's trying to hack him. <laughs> Who knows? There's still a back door there for maybe AI Jor-El to be hidden away on a backup or something within the remnants of the scout ship. As a quick aside, the hovering security droids. One of the things that uh, we like to explore on this podcast is whether a technology would implicate other effects or uses that would seemingly be logic. And if you've got a hovering security droid, then why don't you have an anti-gravity jetpack, right? Well, the answer to that is the only time we ever see the hovering security droids is always in or near large structures. And they never travel particularly fast. They're, they're, they're somewhat slow. And for all we know, they're, they're not, they don't support particularly much weight. So the first point of being always in or near large structures, um, it's an assumption to say that their flight ability is completely within themselves. They may be reacting or responding to a more prevalent overarching technology that's within their large objects or structures, their ships, their buildings. Uh, I'm speaking specifically pr primarily of something like a, a maglev type technology, right? So in other words, if you just put one of these robots out in the middle of Kansas, it can't fly. But if you put it within uh, a citadel or next to a giant scout ship, then it can fly on rails kind of idea. So, but for all we know, yeah, they could have had hovering jetpacks, but then they'd also be slow. And in which case it's not particularly useful. And I will stick with my shuttle or my um, alien dragonfly beast thing, which is much more agile, faster and useful. Okay, so that's the scout ship. Now, I think the most exciting technology, the one with the most potential, the most impact on the possible DCU, at least in theory, it, it could be quite dry in terms of trying to translate it to an actual movie. But from from my perspective, this is the one that would excite me the most if uh, I, I knew about it. And that's the Arctic shuttle. The Arctic shuttle is the shuttle that Zod took from the Black Zero to the Arctic in order to commandeer the scout ship. So he left that shuttle there. And that shuttle is completely intact. It's undamaged. It's completely operational. Unlike everything that I've mentioned above, it, it's working. And so that means from it, you can learn propulsion technologies, powering technologies, and engine technologies, weapon systems, operating weapon systems, operating computer systems, databases, materials, telecommunications. This is something that traveled, according to the movie, at 380 knots, which I had to 
look up, obviously, but it's approximately 440 miles per hour. It was highly maneuverable. Its gun was able to take out fighter pilots with ease. And um, that's just the vehicle itself. Consider all the information technology on a ship like that or sort of the procedural or processing technology you know the materials how they built this thing but the information technology is exciting too and i'll be honest i didn't quite catch the fact that the arctic shuttle was in play it's only after watching the blu-ray disc extras where they start talking about kryptonian culture from the perspective of the u.s government going in and through the arctic shuttle's databases that, I, that this light bulb went off. Well, it's not even a light bulb. They they, they <laughs> directly showed it to me. But yeah, suddenly I'm so excited. I'm like, wow, think about how much information humanity is going to have access to that is light years, light years beyond their information or, or their current tech level. And speaking about excitement, it's not technically a technology, but one of the big impacts that first contact with the Kryptonians cause is knowledge that certain technologies or possibilities exist within the universe definitively. It's one thing to work towards, for example, faster-than-light technology on just a theory. It's another thing if you know for a fact that somebody has been able to do it, and now you're trying to work towards that goal. And that the sort of impact that could have on the DC Cinematic Universe, for example, you could have some scientists who are trying to untap, unlock faster than light technology. They say, you know, we're now within the reach of other extraterrestrial peoples. We need to be able to have some range. We need to have that speed. So let's start to really gear up towards FTL technology. And in the process of doing that, maybe they have an accident, maybe they have a problem, and suddenly you get the flash. I think that makes a lot more sense than a guy getting splashed with some random chemicals and some lightning getting faster than light abilities, right? Chemicals and lightning don't really tie to speed thematically. Don't get me wrong, Flash is my next favorite hero after Superman, and sometimes even first, depending on how it's going, but only Wally West. I don't have a problem with any of the other flashes, but but Wally's my guy. Uh, but <laughs> I forgot where I was going with this. But it might make for a nice updated origin for the Flash. Okay, so that's that aside. Last but not least, we've got Zod's armor. Not It's last not because it's the most impactful, although it could be, but more because I think I'm going to use it to illustrate kind of my approach to this podcast and how we use a semblance of logic <laughs> to come to certain conclusions and figure out how things work. And obviously, this is just an experiment. So feel free to comment and join in the discussion and, and make things work. So first off, the armor is interesting and exciting in a way because it's one of the things most likely to be recovered by private industry versus the government, primarily because it was lost at a Luther facility, and second, because it's such this small piece of technology. It's something that could easily be disclaimed as lost within the rubble of the, the battle. It's not like the scout ship, which that big giant piece of tech, somebody's going to take custody of it. You know, either the government, either Superman, but 
is not something that uh, Luther could just snatch up without anybody noticing. But the armor, the armor could be disappeared into a uh, uh, Luther Corp or Lex Corp vault. So first things first, is that armor powered? Is it power armor? You know, you might be familiar with the Halo series or going further back, Starship Troopers, or if you're an anime or mecha fan like me, you are very familiar with the idea of power armor. I would be inclined to say no. I would say that the powers that you see on Earth are the product of... Um, well, that's another episode. Let's get to, we'll, we'll, we'll cut, we'll nip that in the bud. That's another episode. Um, I, I think the quick rebuttal to whether it is power armor or not is that we have extensive action scenes on Krypton and based on what we observe, it doesn't look like there was any power armor in effect while on Krypton. Those might be different armors and they may have turned off their power it is, of course, based on assumptions, and and that's that's the way this show works. We try to make sort of reasonable assumptions and uh, try to come to a reasonable conclusion or a satisfying conclusion. But I, I would be inclined to say that 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 the armor is not powered. Now, here's the uh, the follow up: Is the armor super strong? How durable? How powerful is that armor? I think the feat that immediately jumps to mind is. Feora getting struck by a missile and nary a scratch on her later, right? Her armor is perfectly fine. It's completely intact. And just in general, surviving Superman level strikes, right? This, he, this clearly isn't just some metal armor or ceramic composite or whatever. Uh, this is something quite durable. It would be the immediate assumption that you would jump to, right? But what we got to do is we got to reconcile a bunch of things that we saw in the film. So one of the things is that Namek didn't dodge the A-10 attack fire. And one of the arguments you could say is that he didn't dodge it because he knew his armor could withstand it, right? They, they had already been scanning human technology. They sort of had a, a general idea that the best that we had is kinetic weapons, maybe nukes on the outset. But overall, they understand that uh, our conventional weapons can't affect their, their armor, and they're relatively confident in this. So because of that, Namek doesn't dodge the A-10 fire, and he gets up, dusts off even after getting hit, without a problem. One theory is because the armor is that strong, okay? But we have to reconcile it with some other things. Uh, we have the issue of uh, Kryptonian small arms fire. Jor-El on Krypton killed some armored troopers with small arms fire, and Lois killed a Kryptonian in armor on the Black Zero. She also shot somebody in the head, but uh, that that doesn't affect the armor analysis. We also have to reconcile the fact that Jor-El was stabbed by a knife, uh, a knife that they apparently is standard issue. It has enough utility that they pack it into a retracting sheath in uh, Zod's forearm, and it has enough utility that it's standard issue for Feora to take into battle with her. However, it doesn't have enough utility that either of them try to attack Superman with their respective knives, whether they had them or not, and they do continue to carry these knives into battle. 
Now, in listing all those things, obviously I'm making all sorts of little assumptions. For example, I assumed that that the knives are brought into battle for utilitarian purposes. But that's not always the case. Even today, our soldiers bring things out of tradition, out of culture, for reasons other than pure utility. By the same token, I assume that the knives aren't effective on Superman because they weren't used against him. But at the same time, that assumes that they were going all out against Superman. And we have to remember that at the time that they were fighting him initially, they wanted him to, well, they didn't necessarily want him to live, but at that time they didn't know where the codex was. So they weren't quite ready to uh, axe him. You have to remember as soon as Zod got back onto the ship, and as soon as he found out what the codex or where it was, what was his first question? Does Kal-El need to be alive for us to get the codex? So their their battle plan in and on Smallville may have been more containment or control to get their reins back onto um, Kal-El, not so much to kill him. So in any case, so there's two possible theories. Uh, there's sort of the traditional burn era Superman theory, which is that Kryptonians empowered by the yellow radiation of our sun emit a bioelectric field a couple of centimeters off their skin enough to enhance their clothing to be invulnerable. It's a comic book conceit that saves Superman from uncomfortable nudity (laughs) whenever he's being struck by things that should destroy, damage, or otherwise strip away his clothing. Instead, they're protected by a force field coming off his body. And, of course, there's the uh, theory that we've been talking about all along, which is that, uh, no, it's not the field coming off the Kryptonians, but it's that the that the armor itself is super hyper durable. Okay? So, in the first case, with the bioelectric field, it doesn't address sort of the theory that we put under Namek not dodging. Uh, we said that Namek didn't dodge because he knew that his armor could take the hit. And if it was just his bioelectric field, then why did he take the hit? Well, one answer is that he didn't want to take the hit. It's it's an assumption that he even wanted to or could dodge. Uh, the other two Kryptonians did dodge, but maybe Namek's just a little slower, right? Maybe he maybe he he uh, he just isn't that quick on the draw. So uh, he didn't mean to take the hit, right? <laughs> Alternatively. Maybe he just knew that he'd be invulnerable. The second time Pharaoh touches touches base with Earth, right? The first time is in retrieving Kalel and Lois. The second time is at the Kent farm. She effortlessly jumps with precision and accuracy into the Kent barn to inspect the craft in which Kalel came to Earth for the Codex. So apparently she either intuited or experienced or you know somehow she knew she had a grasp of her leaping ability and and you'll see namek has that same intuition and and grasp of his leaping ability because he plucks an a10 out of the sky in uh, reprisal for being shot by one of them right so maybe they have a an experience or intuition or expectation of how their powers will operate. So he might not have been tanking because of his armor. He may have been tanking because he knew he would be able to survive the hit. He may have just been invincible. But the one thing that sort of potentially debunks this whole bioelectric field thing is 
Superman's ability to actually damage the helmets. Arguably, a field should make their helmets as invulnerable as the rest of their armor and uh, Superman's ability to damage them and therefore take both Zod and Feor out of the battle tends to suggest that they aren't making their clothing invulnerable. We also have another precedent for that, and that is the oil rig scene. I know that a lot of our our listeners who are inclined that way are quite happy that the environment damaged Clark so that he was in uh, shirtless tatters, but that would tend to suggest that he isn't emanating a field that makes his clothing invulnerable, right? So I think we can cross that off. So then the uh, so then we've got the super durable armor theory, okay? And now we're back to those questions of the small arms fire and the knives. Well, the first case is, you know, the question is, how do these work against the armor? And you can have two types of answers. One, you could say that they don't work against the armor, but that doesn't seem to be true, at least not with the small arms fire. Uh, The center hit did happen to take out a Kryptonian on the ship. Uh, It did happen to take out Kryptonians back on Krypton. And the knife, I guess you could argue that it slipped under the ribs or was only going at the skin suit. It just went around the armor. But but we don't know that. that That's an assumption. All of this is assumption. So, But we're building this. If you've ever taken the MCATs or the LSATs or any kind of formalized testing where they test your logic, what you do is you make these giant matrices of precepts and positions and assumptions and theories. And then you sort of work it like a machine, like a program, and you run your theories through them to uh, reach conclusions. And that's sort of what we're doing here. And just so you know, this will kind of give you the idea of whether you're going to like this podcast or not. I may improve on the format. I may improve in communicating uh, this more clearly and more elegantly, but this is where we're going, okay? So if this is not your cup of tea, uh, you could tune out now. But if you love this stuff, if you love trying to reconcile all these different little pieces of data and uh, trying to make one coherent, sensible theory then this is the podcast for you because that's all we're going to be doing for the first couple of uh, for first couple of episodes in just trying to establish you know one coherent story and then coming back and analyzing it from a creative perspective. All right, sorry, I got got off track there. Um, so one of the arguments that they're not super effective is that they didn't use them against Superman. And to the extent that they did use them once against Superman, it didn't work. The uh, the shuttle actually shot Superman in the chest and he didn't die. Well, we discussed this already. We said that maybe they didn't actually want Superman dead. And it's possible that the shuttle didn't use its full blast when it shot Superman. It may have used a more controlled firing pattern in order to just stun him or put him out of the battle temporarily. We know that they sort of have this capability because... When Kal-El's ship was launched in the first place, Zod pointed to it and said, bring that ship down. And the ship in charge changed its guns. The, the, the gun turret on the, on the tip of the ship switched to um, a barrel with a sort of smaller degree or smaller uh, girth, tending to imply that it would be a weaker, and, uh, a weaker shot rather than sort of an incinerating shot. 
And so maybe the lack of small arms fire against Superman is explainable by the fact that the Kryptons didn't want a super effective weapon attacking him prior to knowing where the Codex was, right? Same thing with the knives. Maybe that's why I didn't use against Superman. That's one way to reconcile it. Now, I've got another radical theory, completely specious, just all made up. It's all speculative. But another theory is that both the small arms and the knives are only specifically super effective against Kryptonian armor. And this is sort of a natural instinct or impulse or impact in sort of the, the, the race between arms and defenses. As you build up defensive technologies, technologies that are able to resist or repel certain attacks, you develop attacks which specifically target or foil or evade those defenses. So with, you know, I'm going long, so I won't go into the whole uh, molecular zipper kind of idea, but the idea is you could have a knife that is specifically effective against Kryptonian armor and only just normally effective as a normal knife against anything else. Okay, going back to a, the, the character motivations, Feora sort of plays with her prey like a cat. So it's a massive assumption to say that she brings that knife into battle for utilitarian purposes. It may just be ceremonial. It may be cultural. It may be uh, her personal creepy fetish. Who knows, right? And those things happen because these are rich, complex characters. They're not just just people that automatically act like robots and do the most efficient, most rational thing every single time, right? Okay, I think we'll leave it at that and come back in a later episode to discuss how all this technology may affect the future of the DC films and possibly Superman's characterization. For now, I hope you enjoyed our pilot episode. Please, I need your feedback, questions, answers, insight, or commentary. You can go to manofsteelanswers.com and post in our forums, or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off. See you next time.